Right, so for the rest of this morning, we're, we're looking at uh, what, what can we learn from critical psychology and critical psychiatry. And first, I'm delighted that Ian's managed to stop over. Every time I speak to him, he's in another part of the world. But he's managed to come to this part of the world. Um, to Ian is, uh, uh, is, a, um, is a professor at the School of Management at Leicester and um, visiting professor at Roehampton and practices as a psychoanalyst at Manchester and is known uh, wherever I travel for his work on critical uh, psychology. So what can we learn from that, Ian? Okay, thanks, Adele. Can you hear me? Um, okay, I'm, I'm not going to talk specifically about what we can learn from critical psychology because I do that in the book chapter. So I'm not going to repeat again what I said there. But what I want to do is to pick up two threads of the argument. And one thread is the role of psychology and specifically of psychologization in relation to contemporary political economy and our critique of political economy. And the other, as the second thread, is the role of psychoanalysis in relation to Marxism and radical politics, which was kind of, like, that's kind of subtext in, in the chapter, not addressed uh, specifically. And I'm going to leave aside the role of psychiatry in this uh, cluster of theories and practices that operate in what Foucault called the psi complex. I'll leave psychiatry uh, to Hugh uh, to deal with uh, in a moment. So first, psychologization. The, the new televisual genre of poverty porn not only represents what's going on in the world, but like all pornography, it feeds into the phenomenon it describes, which today has the added ingredient of psychologization. The new BBC programme to be made by 2020 Productions, called Britain's Hardest Grafter, was scheduled before the Conservatives got 24% of the vote in the general election on a promise pretty well matched by the other main parties to intensify its austerity agenda. Now, after the election, as it sinks in that the Conservatives are really going to enjoy this intensification of austerity as part of a class war that they're winning, there is opposition to the BBC programme. Opposition voices which point out that uh, the £15,000 winnings, £15,000 winnings, will be taxed as earnings by the winner, as well as dragging the reputations of those who compete, who are desperate enough to compete, dragging their reputations through the dirt. Under conditions of psychologization, the assumption made by reality television companies is that this dirt is good. It will be good for you. And the programme is in line with the austerity agenda, which is to make the poor pay for the crisis. And that will not only increase poverty, but also alienation. One of the differences between classical economic liberalism of the 19th century, the emerging capitalism that Marx was writing about, and neoliberalism today, is that there's a deepening influence of psychology in all areas of our lives. Psychology as a separate academic discipline and profession, came into being as capitalism was taking root as the dominant political economic system in Europe, and it flourished, flourished as a helpmate of capitalism in the factories to observe and regulate the behaviour of workers. The early mechanistic forms of psychology were ideally suited to assembly line production processes 
in which each task was broken down into separate components so that each worker's repetitive activity could be monitored. Their own knowledge of the task would also be stripped down into the barest manageable elements so that it could be given back in more efficient form. In this way, the skill of the psychologist in noticing how people behaved and thought complemented the de-skilling of the worker as they were separated from what they once knew. So psychology separated intellectual from manual labor as it developed its own expertise in the way the mind works. And it accomplished this separation so easily, precisely because it's this kind of separation that's at the heart of work under capitalism. And today, there's a further separation at work inside the intellectual labor that psychology has made its own domain of study. This is a separation, a new separation between cognition, rational thinking, and the errors of thinking that the psychologists think they can correct, and emotion. Emotion which becomes a new source of human creativity to be garnered as emotional labor. So women's work then becomes valued in the service sector as sites of labor become feminized. And there's a shift from the old style of psychology, which was all about men, and usually only about men's work, to new forms of psychological research and expertise in which women become the ideal typical human subject to be studied and exploited. So now, this isn't only about psychological expertise for those trained to measure other people's behavior or to correct their faulty thinking. It's also about the way that people are required to behave and think and feel in line with popular and globalized psychological discourse. This sets them up for appropriate treatments to make them happy with their lot, of course. And that was the aim of the shameless Layard report, already been mentioned, commissioned by the previous Labour government, which argued that a quick blast of cognitive behavioral therapy would get people off incapacity benefit for six months and save the government money. But more than that, this use of psychology as a tool frames the poor so that if they dare to resist conditions of alienation, they will be pathologized as mindless or thoughtless or not sufficiently psychologically minded before they even get near a psychotherapy clinic. Then psychology thinks that it needs to go deeper into the cognitions and behavior, into the way that people feel and are made to feel about how they work and who they are. Poverty under capitalism is intimately linked with inequality and the attempt to gauge what has been called the spirit level of this inequality has been a source not only of attempts to update Marx's capital, attempts which aim to repair capitalism instead of putting an end to it, but also of a new spirit of capital itself, a new spirit of capital under neoliberalism. This new spirit of capital that we live inside now revolves around the psychological effects, and even, for some real enthusiasts, the idea that there are psychological causes of the economic crisis, which we should notice as increasingly widespread psychologization. This psychologization refers not only to a crisis of market confidence, as if it were the cause of our recent woes, but also to the ways that victims of the crisis are expected to respond in order to count as good citizens. So this sure does put a new twist 
on each of the aspects of alienation under capitalism that were described by Marx. First, uh, uh, different aspects that I want to draw attention to. First, there's the underlying premise of the program Britain's Hardest Grafter, that there is alienation of each human subject from the others, as people are set against each other as competitors. This first aspect of alienation is fundamental, of course, to any psychological approach that aims to discover how human beings tick by extracting them from the social relationships that made them who they are and treating each of them as enclosed, self-contained individuals. As always, what is discovered, what is discovered appears as if by magic or as if it were natural, actually appears from the conditions that are set in place, sometimes by the discoverers themselves, and that's how it works in the psychologist's little laboratory experiments. Either that, or it appears by the conditions that are set up by psychologists' masters, which is how it works in industry. Nowadays, with the psychologization of experience, the individual separated from others and competing with them for work is also told to take responsibility for the conditions in which they find themselves. They will be assumed to do that, for example, when they sign their contract to take part in the program Britain's Hardest Grafter. Second, and the creative designers for 2020 productions will be part of this problem, there's alienation of human creativity. What is produced is separated from the individual to be turned into a commodity, something that can be bought and sold. So the participants in Britain's Hardest Grafter will be required to show how they feel about their search for work and how they feel will be taken and represented in the narrative of the television program, so that it is no longer their own, so that they have no connection with or control over what they're trying to express as they try to make sense of the spectacle that sells them as a product. The twist that psychologization introduces into this process is that the struggle must now be seen to be an emotional struggle, personal demons, interpersonal conflicts, agony at success or failure, are the stuff of reality television. The creative designers will rely on this to do their own work and they will just as surely de-skill those who provide them with raw material for lucrative entertainment. Third, and this is where there is betrayal of our nature of human, as, as, as human beings, there is an alienation of ourselves from our own bodies, from our own human nature. And this always already is crucial to competition in the workplace. For each worker is at war not only against potential rivals for work, but also against his or her own body, as a body that might one, fa one day fail to take them to work and perform the labour that's necessary to get the wage. The psychologization of everyday life hides this aspect and takes it as given that bodies will be cared for. This, while the National Health Service is being torn apart and privatised. Britain's hardest grafter will include only those fit for work, not those on employment or support allowance. In this case, it will be 2020 productions that will effectively function as the assessors, the media placeholders for Maximus, the private US company that carries out work capability assessments, filtering out those who can work here, so those who can work so they can compete in the program. And, as eco-socialist arguments drawing on Marx have pointed out, 
there is also alienation of human beings from nature as such. This is why capitalism itself, not only commodity culture, which sells artificial social relationships formed under the gaze of the media companies, this is why capitalism has become what has been called by the American Marxist Joel Covell, the enemy of nature. The question will be whether alienation will function as a warning that if we don't break from these political economic conditions from capitalism, then we will be finished and finish each other off in competition for diminishing resources as more of the world becomes enclosed by capital. A battle royale, writ large as entertainment and diversion, while being an essential condition of neoliberalism. <coughs> Frankie Boyle commented after the election that the next five years will be like the Hunger Games, but without the games. <laughs> that's, 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 not, that's not quite right, because there are serious mind games ahead, in which the increasing psychologization of politics will map out some of the most dangerous moves. How we respond to that psychologization while we respond politically to the distress caused by austerity, will be crucial to the battles ahead and crucial to the landscape of our work as psychotherapists. Now I want to shift gear a little bit and say something about psychoanalysis. Some revolutionaries fervently wish that there was some deep connection between Marx and Freud. And the publication of a letter from Marx to Freud, could be the Rosetta Stone to decode the relationship <laughs> between political economy and psychic economies, finally perhaps settling the question of the real political allegiances of psychoanalysis. The letter exists. Republished in a Mexican psychoanalytic journal in 2008, and there's been much discussion among leftist psychoanalysts there about it, and in other parts of Latin America. There are versions in French, Italian and German where a detailed analysis of the history of the text in archives in Amsterdam and Frankfurt weighs up what its significance might be. The letter is undated but appears to have been sent by Marx in 1882 via Freud's then close friend and the mentor <coughs> Wilhelm Fleece in Berlin. The letter refers to then unpublished writings on hysteria that Freud had prepared with Josef Breuer, and it tries to engage Freud in a correspondence about critical and materialist science, Marx offering to send over a copy, to, copy of Capital for Freud to read. Another letter from Marx to Engels has a smudged postmark which cues us into the 1882 date and claims that Freud had sent him some papers on metapsychology that would be the early workings on what would then become psychoanalytic theory. And here Marx describes to Engels two key questions Freud is exploring. The existence of mental activities that are not conscious, which would indicate that the different classes are not fully aware of what they make, and of the consequences of their actions. And secondly, the existence of a sexual economy which appears as the result of investigations into the sexual lives of the bourgeoisie, which would fit neatly with their analysis of bourgeois marriage as a disguised form of prostitution, though Marx doesn't spell it out here in this letter. If the dates are right, then this would mean that this was old Marx, he died the following year, and it was sent 
to a Freud in his mid-twenties, who Marx refers to in the letter twice as young doctor. That is well before Freud actually invented psychoanalysis. Much of the debate about the letters in the accompanying article, which was originally published in journal, uh, German in 1979, is about their journey and place in different archives. And this draws attention to a similarity between the histories of Marxism and psychoanalysis, which is that there are repeated returns to founding texts, to interpretations and readings of those texts for clues about how things might develop. Now, in both cases, there's a contradiction between the privilege given to the writing and the practice, which in psychoanalysis would be through oral transmission of technique, and in Marxism would be through the class struggle. The word correspondence is a bit misleading, for there's no evidence of a reply from Freud to Marx. And the word is a little bit of a giveaway of what the later Marxist readers might be hoping for, that there is a same kind of correspondence between the two theories. Another little giveaway is in the link to the journal Subjectivi de la Cultura, where the web link gives it as Correspondencia Marx Feud. <laughs> Another similarity between Marxism and psychoanalysis is the degree of censorship and rewriting of history that marks both and makes it more understandable that there should be such energy put into deciphering who wrote to who. In Marxism, of course, we know that the rise of Stalin and the bureaucracy in the Soviet Union meant that the production of the Marx-Engels complete works, the mega, was not in safe hands. So when David Ryazanov, in charge of the Moscow archives, said he was doubtful about the authenticity of the letters and was purged shortly afterwards, something that Trotsky commented on in 1931, this could be taken as further evidence that there was something to hide. Trotsky was favourable to psychoanalysis, sending his own daughter Zina to an analyst in Berlin. And Stalin, on the other hand, saw it as a decadent bourgeois fake science opposed to dialectical materialism. In this light, it's a nice thing to say here in the Anna Freud Center, in this light it makes perfect sense that a future president of the International Psychoanalytical Association, Joseph Sandler, would once have been a revolutionary Marxist and a member of the Trotskyist Fourth International. In psychoanalysis, there is much controversy over the way its own history is written. Squabbles over the occlusions and ambiguities in the first major biography of Freud by Ernest Jones, who was always anxious about links between psychoanalysis and the left, well, to obscure them, and who has uh, opted for keeping the psychoanalytic associations in Germany under the Nazis going, even when they expelled the Jewish analysts. One embarrassing episode Jones glosses over in his biography of Freud was the death of Victor Tausk, who committed suicide in 1919, the day after ending his analysis with Helena Deutsch, following Freud's own suggestion to Deutsch that she end it. So the suggestion that the Marx-Freud letter found its way to the archives via the Tausk family could be further evidence that something was being hidden which should now be brought to light. So, there is doubt that the letter is genuine. But is that really the point? Clustered around the letter are the activities of adherents of two theoretical frameworks turned into kingdoms carefully guarded by followers 
so that we should know what lies as the authentic origin of each one. But the key word here is lies. Here's a tendentious link. The invention, this invention of tradition in these two fiefdoms is crafted much in the same way as the invention of the tradition of separate nations is patched together, usually from external sources, and certainly well after the founding events they pretend to describe. That is, we all live in a world that is divided into little fiefdoms called nation-states, and so it makes all the more sense that we should think of our own individual selves as some kind of sovereign territories. Freud explored the image of the self as like a fortress which guards itself against outsiders and which makes sure to suppress any internal division that might cue the enemy into a weakness. And the invention of tradition in Marxist work, in a a specific uh, strand of cultural historical analysis called the invention of tradition, that Eric Hobsbawm and Terence Ranger were, were key figures in. The invention of tradition in Marxist work is designed to show how the colonial centres and their offspring are fabricated, <coughs> patched together, and then turn vicious if they are questioning, any questioning of how real they are. What psychoanalysis and Marxism both show is that these supposedly unified and separate entities, the self and the nation, are fictional, and that often they serve to obscure conflict. These stories we tell ourselves cause more emotional pain rather than less, as our little fortress of the self is shored up against internal threat as well as external threat, particularly against desires of others and for others. And these stories are bound up with practices of exclusion and policing of boundaries as the fantasy of a united kingdom or fortress Europe operates as more of a prison state than a paradise. Some Marxists today forget this invention of tradition when they appeal to a fictional unity of the British working class as an argument for keeping Scotland in their disunited kingdom. And they risk falling into the trap of Little England when they get ready to say no to Europe. Psychoanalysis reminds us that there's no such thing as unity, that a wholesome, harmonious society of any kind is just as much a fantasy as a wholesome, harmonious self. Psychoanalysis reminds us that unconscious desire pulls in different directions, tears us apart as individuals or groups, even at the same moment that it glues us together in our collective struggle to make different forms of civilization. And it reminds us of the importance of memory, both of what did and what did not actually happen in the past. Psychoanalysis is quite Marxist, something the correspondence between Marx and Freud actually diverts attention from. Freud called in 1918, in a speech in Budapest, for public free provision of psychoanalysis for workers. He actively supported the development of welfare service and education in Berlin and Budapest and in Vienna through the sex poll clinics of Wilhelm Reich who was expelled from the Stalinized Communist Third International for being a psychoanalyst, and from the International Psychoanalytical Association for being a revolutionary Marxist, working with, among others, activists of the Fourth International. The imposition of fees and the intense bureaucratic regulation of psychoanalytic treatment in the clinics 
was actually instituted by the Nazis when they took power in Germany and Austria. And it's that model of privatized treatment that we live with today. The debates over the implementation of Freud's Budapest speech were international and internationalist, calling on local state resources to be put into psychoanalytic education and treatment while dissolving national state boundaries. The rise of fascism imposed private and nationalist agendas on psychoanalysis while breaking the link between psychoanalysts, who were mainly on the left, and Marxist politics. The connection between psychoanalysis and Marxism will be forged again through our commitment to the disunity of each, diversity of debate and practice, and a critical perspective on the operations of the state or the orthodoxy of tradition. Contradiction is what we listen for in our psychotherapeutic work, and contradiction rather than unity is what enables an articulation of the unconscious life of individuals and politics today. Thanks. Ian, thank you very much. We'll have questions shortly. Uh, Hugh, is it yeah. possibly come? So, Hugh, Hugh Middleton. Hugh, Hugh is uh, a, a consultant uh, psychiatrist in the NHS and also an associate professor at uh, the University of Nottingham. Um, particularly with regard to this talk, he's, he's co-chair of the UK Critical Psychiatry Network. Hugh. Hello. Thank you, Del, and thank you, people, for having me here. I hope you can bear the psychiatrist in your midst. I think there are one or two others here. It's certainly something I would not have expected to find myself doing some years ago, namely speaking to an audience in these hallowed halls. Um, but I've very much enjoyed contributing to the book. I'm very pleased to be here. I'm going to give a much more mundane presentation than the excellent scholarly work you've just heard from Ian. I'm not going to suggest answers. I'm not going to provide you with a polemic. I'm not going to give you a call to arms. I'm just going to give you a perspective upon psychotherapy, counselling, psychoanalysis that comes from medicine, one that you might not have considered, and perhaps offer some opportunities to think about that. Now, as Del said, I've come here as... Now, what am I going to do here? Sorry. Yeah. Okay, the right-hand one. Yeah. I'm here, in a sense, I'm here as one of the co-authors of the book, obviously, but I'm also here as co-chair of the UK Critical Psychiatry Network, and I know there are one or two members of the Critical Psychiatry Network here today, but for those of you that haven't come across the outfit, let me just let you know what that means. 
because there are some parallels between ourselves and what you might be aspiring to do as critical psychotherapists, counsellors or analysts. We are an informal network, a loose association of some 200 UK psychiatrists. Practically all of us have experience of working in the National Health Service and as a result some experiences or shared experiences of the difficulties and the frustrations that come with that, particularly the discomfort very often of being asked to do things that we wouldn't choose to do if we were free to practice as we might want to. We share a lot of discontent about the way in which psychopharmacology has been promoted over recent years and a lot of, or not a lot, but a a great deal of our work has been or has built upon Joanna Moncrief's very effective criticisms of the psychopharmaceutical enterprise and I note that both of her books are available to purchase in the bookstall outside. And that is part of our tangible outcome, a body of work that includes those books, others, and I have to do this because that's part of what you do at a do like this, <laughs> and that's promote my own contribution to that collection of work. So Psychiatry Reconsidered was published just a couple of weeks ago, almost at the same time as Dell's edited version. And all I draw your attention to here, other than the fact that it's out there, and if you want to buy it, that would be great, is the subtitle, From Medical Treatment to Supportive Understanding. And that conveys what we're trying to present, and that conveys what I would like to share with you this morning. Much of the criticism that the UK Critical Psychiatry Network has of contemporary and conventional approaches to what we might generically and without apology for the time being call mental health difficulties is focused upon an analysis of the shortcomings of co-locating that enterprise with the medical enterprise as a whole. Much of the frustration, the difficulties and the dissatisfactions with practice that service users, clients, again, just as a generic term, clients perhaps suffer when encountering NHS mental health services, can be understood as a consequence of that mismatch. And many of the frustrations that practitioners experience come from it as well, or can be understood to have come from it as well. Now, we've already heard quite a lot of Freud, but you can't really come and talk here without saying something and in perhaps and perhaps presenting one's one's own take on it. Now here's Michel Foucault's take on Freud, which is perhaps a little less complimentary than we've just heard from, from Ian. What Foucault does about to for or with Freud is that he identifies Freud's work and his approach as a further and particularly sophisticated form of alienation. Now, you can take me up on that when we've finished, by all means, but by identifying clients' difficulties with the object of a professional's skill and expertise, the client then becomes an even, or remains, an alienated other 
in much the same way as the incarcerated forerunners, if you like, of Freud's clientele could have been considered. Now we can come back to that, but the point I want to establish or, or, or base what I'm going to continue with upon is the idea of the client's difficulties being the focus of a professional's skill and expertise. Here is that picture. I don't know if it's familiar to you. Brouillet's presentation of Charcot presenting a case of hysteria to an audience of medical people. This is very obviously a clinical case presentation. This is a representation of what Foucault would describe as the medical gaze. And those who know about these things far better than I do can either confirm or deny that Freud had this, or a picture, a copy of this, hanging in his consulting room. We also know very well that Freud went to study with Charcot early in his career. It is, in fact, an urban myth, but it's a fairly commonly peddled one, that one of the observers depicted here is Freud himself. I don't think that's true, but it's an urban myth. Again, I present it to you as further evidence of a strong association between Freud and the medicalized approach to human despair, difficulties, and psychological problems. You can take me up on that if you wish when we've finished. What's happened since then? If we locate Foucault's statement about Freud's alienation of the person through the conceptualization of the person's difficulties as the objects of a professional's skill and expertise to the middle of the 20th century, when Foucault was writing Madness and Civilization. What's happened since then? When we've seen a further entrenching of that medical model, haven't we? We've seen the growth of the diagnostic schemes, particularly DSM and ICD. We've seen the expression of professional ambition amongst medical practitioners who wish to exploit the opportunities that mental health difficulties provide. We've seen the growth and, in, the growth and uh, influence of the psychopharmacology industry. We've seen the consumerism Ian's spoken about just now. And we've seen the application of mental health services by those who wish to exploit the opportunities they provide for risk management. So some of the political influences that we've just heard. What is this medical model that we refer to and where has it come from? Now I've referred to the fact that it can be identified with the concept of identify a person's, identifying a person's difficulties with a set of skills and particular capabilities that only a specially trained practitioner can provide or exploit. Where does this come from and why is it such a powerful set of forces? It's Telcott Parsons, of course, who describes it so clearly and so well. And this is effectively a utilitarian or functional 
understanding of what goes on when somebody becomes unwell. Illness incapacitates the effective performance of social roles. When somebody becomes ill, in a classic sense of the word, they become less capable of performing their necessary roles. And they do this in a way that evokes empathy and a sympathetic response. So rather than censuring them for being unable to fulfill their role, we have a very well-defined, very smoothly running, deeply embedded set of social arrangements that accommodates this phenomenon. The sick role and the reciprocal roles of those that are employed or available to provide for that. It's an institutional response to the disruption afforded by illness. It's a deeply embedded social institution and it prescribes a well-defined pattern of reciprocal roles that have to be followed by healthcare practitioners of all sorts and their clientele. For the practitioner, fulfillment of the role depends upon being able to demonstrate through certification, authorization, training, and so on, a high level of technical competence. For the practitioner, it requires affective neutrality. One is there as a professional, and we talk a lot, don't we, about being professional in the healthcare context. We have certain rules and regulations about things that we are not or are not and must not do to, for, or with our clientele. We have to remain emotionally distant from them in a professional sense. Because the interaction between a licensed healthcare practitioner and their client is based upon an expression of the practitioner's special expertise. It's not, as it were, a normal, mundane relationship. It is, of necessity, a relationship between a skilled and authorised practitioner and a client who, in some way or another, is paying to be acted upon. And within this context, although the client or the patient's welfare might be a primary consideration, that's actually conducted in a very ritualized way, if you think about it. It's not the full welfare of the client, but the extent to which I, as a practitioner, am capable of acting upon this client in a useful and productive way. As far as the sick person is concerned, well, we know perhaps more about this, or it's more familiarly discussed, the person is relieved of their responsibilities. The situation is judged as beyond their control. They're in the situation not because they've chosen to be there, not because they're in some way an irresponsible person, but because something has happened to them that is construed, constructed or believed to be beyond their control. They want to get better. This is an unfortunate set of circumstances. It's one that they wish to relieve themselves of. And they sign up to the contract that they will submit themselves to the doctor's orders. They will seek technically competent help and cooperate with it. So we have these two interdigitating roles, which are very well defined, 
which are established and clear, which find their expression throughout all forms of healthcare, and one could argue even find expression in the esteem, in the esteem with which healthcare practitioners are held, much of the hierarchy within healthcare, the importance medical research plays in our economy, and so on, and so on. Where has it come from? I'm talking about a, a deeply embedded, very powerful, highly influential social institution. Well, actually, it makes a lot of sense, or it made a lot of sense, until only about a hundred years ago. I don't know if you can see this very clearly, but this is <coughs> simply a depiction, if you like, of where would we be? Perhaps a, a late 18th century domestic scene, and behind the door where you can't see it is the father of the family lying in bed unwell. And simply, and, and I, I, I put this picture up simply to draw to your attention the fact that until only about a hundred years ago, most of humankind's encounter with life-threatening conditions was a very stereotyped phenomenon. It was an acute bacterial infection over which nobody had any direct control. The person suffered a fever and the fever either broke because the body's natural defences prevailed or the person died. And there was nothing anybody could usefully do other than look after them in terms of hydration, food, domestic hygiene, whilst that process passed through. There were no antibiotics, there were no vaccines, and that's how it had been since the dawn of time. It's only in the last hundred years or so that our encounter with nature, in the form of the Grim Reaper, has begun to change in any other significant way. And of course, the Talcott Parsons sickroll fits like magic onto that particular typology of illness. So it's barely surprising that we still live with the legacy of the nature of the relationship between ill person in all their various manifestations and healthcare practitioner in all their manifestations that resonates with the realities of what illness was until only, in these terms, a very short time ago. Now, of course, over the last century, there have been a lot of challenges to that archetype. People with chronic physical disability survive. If you had an accident and you developed gangrene and you had to have your leg amputated, in 1860, you had a 60% chance of dying from an infected wound, even after a surgical amputation. So the chances of surviving a serious accident that might leave you chronically physically disabled were actually quite small until the beginning of surgical sterility and other developments that have followed in its path since the beginning of the 20th century. <clears throat> because people aren't dying from bacterial infections, 
we see a lot of people living with other conditions. And so rather than being under the immediate threat of dying unless you're carefully looked after, we have conditions which amount to a persistent threat of life-threatening condition. A cancer in remission. The person is fit, able and well, but their relationship with their own mortality has been changed quite significantly. We have conditions that people survive, but which are relentlessly progressive, again, despite what anybody can do about it. We have conditions which are manageable, provided there's an appropriate partnership between those that can provide the relevant technology and expertise and the person who might be suffering from them. Diabetes, asthma, hypertension, epilepsy. And we have our old friend mental illness, which clearly doesn't fit the characteristics of the classic sick role. Just to give you an example of how things have changed over the century in relation to one of those categories, here we have on the left an illustration taken from an early edition of The Secret Garden. Everybody remember The Secret Garden, the child's book? Yes? A disabled lad is found by his cousin in the large house. He's being cosseted and cared for because he's a cripple and can't be expected to live a wholesome, healthy and full life. And of course, the story is about his redemption through his friendship with his cousin and others and, intriguingly, the use of horticulture or gardening as a therapeutic tool. It was written and published for the first time in 1908. Here we are. What do we think about cripples, in inverted commas, and obviously I use that term sardonically now, in relation to the London Paralympics some 100 years later. The disability rights movement, other changes have made a difference to how we think about people with persistent physical disability. One, challenges, one challenge to the archi archetype. I think a lot would say that there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of how our society accommodates people who are physically disabled, but I hope we can agree that big changes have been achieved during the course of the 20th century. But it's been a long, hard slog for all of those concerned. What about mental illness? And again, I use the term loosely and without, if you like, careful thought, other than we've got to use a term of some sort. Well, in relation to our archetypal acute bacterial infection, which is, if you like, the, the template or the mould for the relationship between the healthcare practitioner and their clientele, it doesn't work at all, does it? We think of it in very broad terms as a set of phenomena that may have arisen as a result of a particular interaction between an individual's vulnerabilities and the circumstances that they find themselves in. It is not a stable phenomena that can be externally verified to everyone else's satisfaction. So we can't have a set of a clearly defined set of professional 
definitions that define what is and what is not. There is no common understanding of how it works. From my own particular field, somebody suffering from recurrent panic attacks might be somebody who has a chemical imbalance, some people might say. Might be somebody who is suffering catastrophic interpretations, somebody else might say. Somebody who has unstable attachments, somebody else might say. And I guess there are as many other interpretations of that phenomenon as there are people in a room. So we don't have an ability to identify a phenomenon as a clearly defined illness. But most importantly, in relation to the applicability of the conventional, historic, medical model sickness role arrangement, recovery from these states is best understood as self-directed growth and development, rather than the result of a professionalized intervention that makes a specific difference. A professional might be able to identify or provide a set of circumstances within which that has happened. But I hope there aren't too many who believe that they really get inside their head and turn nuts and pull levers and pull strings. A professional might be able to provide a context within which that can happen. But when it happens, it's self-growth rather than the direct result of mind surgery. So my concluding slide reads a bit like this. I've talked about the medical model. I've tried to give you a, an idea of where it, what it is and where it might come from. I personally hold the view that the, the Parsons sick role remains a very powerful determinant. And I think the reasons for that are that it is actually very deeply embedded. And there are good reasons why it's deeply embedded. It's only become irrelevant in very recent times. Criticisms of that medical model are wider, actually, than the mental health work or therapy because we have to begin to adopt alternatives to that classic sick role in relation to our reappraisal of what it means to live with a chronic physical disability, our reappraisal of what it means to live under the threat of a recurrence of something that might be life-threatening, our reappraisal of what it means to work in partnership with a healthcare practitioner to maintain something such as diabetes or asthma or epilepsy, and from our point of view, most importantly, a reappraisal of what it means to work with somebody who is in difficulties because they are despairing, they're distressed, they're confused, or have come to a healthcare practitioner for some other related difficulty. But providing alternatives to traditional ways of responding to those situations challenge a wide range of institutional attitudes and practices. You know, who is and who is not a licensed practitioner? Who pays for them? Under what circumstances? And that's just the beginning. Because it's all deeply embedded. And I think it's fun challenging those things. But I think it's also important to understand that it's quite a long game. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you've got one. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, 
responding to both Hughes and Ian's paper is David Morgan, consultant psychotherapist and psychoanalyst in, in, in the NHS and in private practice. David. Can you hear me, everybody? Is it on? Yeah? Okay. Yeah, I am a hamster psychoanalyst. <laughs> uh, but I work in this project. It's quite radical. Um, I want to talk about how difficult uh, the health of the relationship really is, actually, um, and why it should not be categorised and simplified. Um, I have to agree, it seems the psychoanalysis uh, uh, has become a luxury, to some extent, for middle-class people, which I'm desperate to change. I talk as someone who worked for 25 years in the NHS, providing a helpful relationship, as best as I could, to firstly so-called mad people at the Morty Hospital, and later to so-called violent, sexually aggressive people at the Portman Clinic. One seemed to attack their own minds, whilst the other seemed to smash up or entrap or ensnare the minds and bodies of others. Psychoanalysis, in my view, is still a radical, uh, or should be a radical, way of approaching these problems. In fact, Winnicott challenged, was the first person, I think, in the 50s to really challenge ECT and leucotomy in the 50s, and say that treating the mind as a brain in the skull is what psychiatrists did because they didn't know what else to do at the time. They thought, I think, that providing the treatments they did at the time was actually being helpful. In today's press, in the paper on the way here, someone was actually taken to court for suggesting a treatment for autism was to take bleach. Okay, that's sort of helpful treatment. A self-administered treatment, often offered for by suicidal black patients at the morgue, actually, who actually found it helpful that they understood their wish to be whiter than white as a negative reaction to the racist culture that they lived in. Or the Nigerian woman abandoned by her tribe who created disturbance outside Muswell Hill Sainsbury's by running up to them and hugging them as if they were their long-lost relatives. But she herself, abandoned and lost in a foreign country, needed to provide comfort. Her own loneliness and poverty projected bodily and annoyingly into the other. Helping these people with their poverty and loneliness is extraordinarily difficult and not an easy task. And I think it does require quite a lot of training and understanding of one's own madness and one's own violence and one's own sexuality. An English pilot I saw recently with hysterical blindness, and you'll recognise the uh, familiarity, uh, who had fantasies about crashing planes, as he believed, because he could not bear his own insight into the limitations of his own mental equipment that he wished to turn a blind eye to. This patient, who I have seen for three years, stopped, I'm glad to say, in the current news, the last part of the person who was like this, stopped being a pilot, and was chillingly reminded recently by the case of the German pilot who killed his passengers, again, who had seemed to suffer from hysterical blindness, who had been seen by numerous doctors, none of whom actually, I think, looking at the case, obviously quite interested in this, have given him the time or the space to reflect upon what is this hysterical symptom is really about. Help is very difficult in these situations, and I think it does require a lot of training and understanding. Um, so these are the poor and afflicted sufferers from terrible metaphors, failures of symbolization due to emotional or other forms of impoverishment in their backgrounds that could not get help could not get sometimes the help that they required. In extreme circumstances, people long for people with skills. They just long to see somebody with the skills. And the helpful person is the key. But it is difficult to help, really difficult to help. 
I run a pro bono, courtesy of my pension uh, from the National Health Service, uh, a service for whistleblowers from society. These are people often driven mad by the fraudulent practices of the organisations they work for. I have seen bankers, lawyers, judges, politicians, union leaders from every strata of society who have no one to turn to. They cannot get help because we don't want to know. I think the help they need is something we all want to turn a blind eye to. At times, when they come into my consulting room, um, I hate them too, actually. I'm aware of my rather unpleasant countertransference. I'm not very helpful. I don't want to help them. They make me aware of a supposedly democratic society that is actually rotten to the core at every level. It's really disturbing to me in my house to consult me. I feel so paranoid after my whistleblowers group, which is ten people who come to see me, that I think my phone is tapped. In fact, the uh, investigative journalist I write and do these lectures with has actually, when he phones me now, says, Hello, Sergeant, before he speaks. But I think actually it is. Although I might be being paranoid. You make your own decision. But these people still need my help. And I can only help them because I had a, had a training that helped me bear the sort of ambivalence and hatred that I feel towards them at times. So I don't like admitting to okay. It feels awful to be exposed to such corruption. Mm. And my first feeling, to some extent, is to feel helpless. And I think quite a lot of the stuff we're talking about here today, including the society we're living in at the moment, makes a lot of us trying to help people feel helpless. And managing that feeling without turning to simplistic forms of treatment of one sort or another, I completely understand why people want to have things manualised. If I could get away from these patients and find a manual to tell me how to do it, I'd love it. I so want to find a way of simplifying the experience of having to be in the room with somebody and tolerate what I'm hearing, okay? Which does affect my nice middle class golf club sensibilities, okay? Um, don't play golf. But, <laughs> um, I think, you know, a helpful person is the key. But finding a helpful relationship is difficult. I grew up in North Wales, and I remember feeling, probably unfairly, that everyone seemed so taken up with their own survival that there's no time for help. <laughs> Finding secure relationships in our culture, particularly now at this moment, is extremely difficult. And I feel I've seen people who have never felt safe to tell anyone else what they really are disturbed by. I used to have a phrase at the Portman Clinic, violent patients, if you want people to act, not act thoughtlessly towards others and mindlessly, you have to give them a mind that thinks about them. And I have actually met people who I think have never had help to think ever in their lives. So the first person they experience in the consultant uh, who they meet, in all this paraphernalia of being inhabited in the clinic and all the rest of it, actually, if they have a mind that can think about them, it's their first experience. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all just help one another and we didn't all need this professional training? Mm -hmm. I agree that mental illness is not an adequate description of a complicated presentation. The idea of an illness that just emerges due to some fault um, uh, is wrong. The people I see have disorders that are the fault of their unhelpful relationships and histories that they come from, not the result of random infections. The sick people role sounds passive, and all the patients I have described are trying in their limited, and they are limited, pre-symbolic way to communicate something very concretely. 
There is a lot of control to some extent in the language they are using. Think of the mother of the anorexic who watches her child disappear. Or indeed, the German pilot, in a rather metaphorical way, gets rid of his own falling from grace, his own breakdown in his equipment, by taking 180 people with him. It's still a metaphor. I work with the people who work with Jamie Bolger, the, the Thompson and Venables, supervised at Port McKinney. And it was clear in these children's enact enactment with Jamie Bolger that what they were enacting, actually, was their own death of their own internal child, a long, long, long way from help. And the psychic worlds that they were living in, they were starved of understanding. And, under mm -hmm. and acting out this terrible thing with this little boy was a horrible way of communicating. Okay? So all these concrete communications have a, a, a wish to communicate something, uh, and it does need sometimes an expert to begin to actually unpick and tolerate and bear thinking about them. <clears throat> so, what is, the, what is being helpful really about? But it's difficult to help people who are driven to create a sense of helplessness in others. I think sometimes Freud's death drive plays a part. I really do. This is why the transference in psychoanalysis is paramount in the analytical setting. It can be abused. Some of my colleagues are the most arrogant, middle-class, self-satisfied people I have ever met. <laughs> we become complacent. We should all be on the austerity march next Saturday. Some will be. Some people contribute to trying to change society. That commodifies our patients and makes them sick. But when it comes to helping people, it is the transcendence with its repetition, the actual idea of repetition at its core, where the scales of relatedness appear, the banker whose parents nearly starved in the miners' strike, taunting me that he had so much money he could pay for his mother's breast cancer treatment in Heidelberg. Um, not knowing how pretty my own mother at that time had died of breast cancer in the perfectly good NHS hospital six months ago. But I knew, my expertise as a psychoanalyst, that he was impoverished, dealing with his own starvation by trying to make me feel envious to some extent. The envy he must have felt at his parents' humiliation and abject poverty as they almost ate cardboard at the miners, in the miners' strike. Part of it is being with someone who is helpful, just helpful, and has a wish to help people. But it's also somebody who can hold the imprint of a relationship and slowly and carefully give it back. So the patient, whatever you want to call them, the client, the other person, becomes aware of it. And you do this in a relationship. But being helpful is extremely difficult. That's why working with my um, uh, whistleblowers, I have found it extremely difficult to hear about these stories. Because it makes me feel that there's not one honest level in society at all, which is probably maybe correct. In my profession, the idea of an omnipotent clinician is difficult. They exist, and at times I know I have been one too. The wish to be the one that knows is very seductive. But many of them give up lucrative uh, careers because they're longing to do something deeper, to work with the psyche rather than mammon. And some people work for years to very little. The honorary therapist at the moment is becoming a sort of full-time profession for some people. I agree the, lives, the uh, lure of working in the psyche is also an attraction to power, that many of my colleagues have much more power before becoming analysts. So one of the things that Freud learned early 
is that the physician who has not had his own analysis is subject to the currents of control and superiority and splitting between the one who has and the other who hasn't. And a hundred years ago, he insisted that everybody should have their own analysis, to actually think about why they want to become an analyst. Okay? Um, in the most extreme cases, this can mean that the individual who has had an authoritarian upbringing can be tempted to inflict this on the next generation. And quite a lot of us, attracted to the helping professionals, I'm sure, have this at the core, which hopefully we do explore in our own analysis. And I acknowledge that things can go wrong. But I do feel passionately that the essence of this relationship between two people in the consulting room, wherever it is, Hampstead or wherever it might be, can be an exploration where truths can be spoken. Because the people who are attempting to look at these things, the analyst, the therapist, should have looked into their own souls, their own selves. In my own practice, I activate the Robin Hood principle, pro bono for the whistleblowers I have seen. And many people in my profession are a strong voice in trying to retain psychotherapy for free in the NHS. There is a distinction to be drawn between what psychoanalysis perpetrates is seen as bad or rubbish, uh, because all it offers is a placebo, an opiate for a disturbed society. And also, I think, the gross injustice that many of my patients have experienced of never having had a mental space in their lives before. And to create that mental space, I think, is extremely difficult. And I really worry that we simplify it by becoming too involved in attacking that space and looking at it and measuring it and all this sort of thing. And the actual experience of actually being in the room with somebody is what most of these patients want. Okay? Most of the psychiatrists I know say, what the patients say to them is, we don't want your drugs. I just want to talk to somebody. Okay? That's all I want. Okay? But talking to somebody is extremely difficult. And actually being able to help somebody actually does require, I think, a very strong, powerful training which enables you to face aspects of yourself that these patients will put you in touch with. So I just want to make a, a sort of plea for the mental space of psychoanalysis and the fact that it is a radical treatment. And I think it can still be a radical treatment if we can keep it in the NHS, which unfortunately at the moment uh, is being attacked. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, David. So, psychology, psychiatry, psychoanalysis. Can these people come together? Do something? Your questions, please. Um, I'd like to particularly address myself to Ian Parker's um, talk, but it applies also across the board. Um, I'm also, I mean, I've been a, I am a refugee from psychology and then became a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. Um, and I've also been involved in various left-wing attempts to increase the, um, increase access to therapy, particularly from people who can't afford it. Um, but what I want to say in relation to Ian's talk is, um, it, I find it, though I agree with pretty much all you said, um, I thought it was rather too totalizing, um, and um, that as though all psychology or all psychological approaches to life under capitalism are is are therefore bad. Um, uh, whereas um, you know, we know as Dave, you know, David's talk absolutely illustrated um, that's absolutely not 
the case. You know, people do want help, and they mostly want psychological forms of help rather than pharmaceutical. But I think one of the things you touched upon was that psychology, um, psychology's view of the individual is very split off from anything social. Um, and it seems to me that the sort of alternative and critical approaches within this, within this whole big field, um, one of the main um, directions of travel has always been to try and evolve a more social view of the individual, indeed to critique that very distinction between society and the individual. And it seems to me that critical psychology you know, is really psychosocial and um, that the um, left-wing, feminist, gay, anti-racist critiques of psychoanalysis also are all ones which in um, in their critiques draw upon um, the play of society um, in and through the individual and that part of what's needed in developing a more critical psychotherapy, psychology and maybe psychiatry is um, a fundamentally different view of the subject. And indeed, you know, one of the iconic texts of critical psychology is called Changing the Subject. Um, and I think that kind of opens it out a bit more from what can become a very pessimistic, um, totalising view. Chandra, thank you. Do you want to respond to that, Ian? I agree. Uh, I mean, I'd like to hear all the people Okay, speak. fine. I have things to say. Sure. So... Is it Iris? Sorry. Thank you. Um, I'd just like to say to the last speaker that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that they're not out, they're not listening to your telephone. (laughs) They're not out to get you. Um, But more seriously, I just wanted to ask whether um, the the work that you and your department or whoever was involved with the James Bulger had any effect outside of the the therapy space, and how did you get it to the courts or to um, social opinion? How, how did you generalise that? Um, I, I don't think it did. I, mean, I think, uh, again, we worked in a specific way with, I worked with the two therapists who worked with the, uh, with, with the, ter- the Thompson, yes. Thompson and Venables, and um, uh, the terrible feeling is that the same thing can happen at any moment yes. in any part of the world. Yes. In our society, particularly at the moment, there are children in desperate need mm. who can only. I mean, the, the biggest growing part of psychiatry mode is forensic. Okay? Why? Because you have to be taking notice of it if you hit somebody. Mm. Okay? So you want to get psychiatric treatment, mm. go out and hit someone mm. or abuse mm. somebody. Mm. Uh, and it's expanding. That's true. My brother's just got it. Right, there we go then. You see, yeah. yes. Okay, so, you know. Uh, and that, that, that is because it, yeah. you want to get taken notice of, you have to yeah. act something out concretely. Okay. Yeah. Otherwise, it's symbolic, and there's the uncertainty about whether you really need treatment or not, and you're left in the community and all that. So. Can I just follow that? Is there a way, because the way you described that here, I think, really, I think we heard what you were saying. Is there a way that you could describe it, that people, this is your question, really, I think, that, that our culture could hear it? Yeah. Is there, is there, what, what, is there a way? By, by giving talks and lectures and trying to write books, mm. but, that, mm. but one is always preaching to the converted, unfortunately. That's mm. the other problem. It really is a difficult thing. You know. Um, you know, I've done a little radio program recently, and uh, we got a very good response about this very subject. But does it actually reach governmental level? I don't think so. Mm. I don't think so. Because I think basically, so, you know, your average psychiatric patient is not cost effective. You know. I'm ignoring people, and you know, I'll be very cynical, I think. There is no, if I see patients at the moment, I think the suicide can get admitted anywhere is extraordinarily difficult. Right? Mm-hmm. I am cynical 
they kill themselves is cheaper. I really do think that. I'm sorry to say that, but uh, you know, the, all the old asylums um, had all their problems, all the therapeutic communities um, have got. Got a microphone? Ah, hello. Um, yes. Um, first to um, Ian Parker. Um, at the end of your presentation, I was had to restrain myself from leaping up to sing the international. And you'll be grateful that I didn't because I can't sing. Um, so I agree with so much of what you said um, for various reasons. Um, what I've been thinking more and more about this, I, I put it in different terms. I call it therapy beyond its remit, what's happening in this country. And as an American who's lived here for 30 years, Whatever is going on in the U.S. is coming here. So this institutional response that Hugh Middleton described doesn't exist in the U.S. We don't even have that much. <clears throat> the one thing I wanted to say, I was surprised, and perhaps the book that the first speaker talked about mentions this, but there's a theorist who recently died that I think really did for many, many years, addressed this these, this issue, and that's David Smale. And uh, uh, David Smale, who worked as a psycho- uh, psychologist, I believe, clinical psychologist, with people who their problems he saw maybe to an extreme were all social, and that's where I differ from with him a bit. But he understood that People don't understand why things happen to them that they internalize. And he saw the role of the therapist, I believe, as saying, this is why you feel this way. You are powerless. Nothing that you can do can stop your factory from closing. Unless other actors come into play, that's another story. Thank you. He, he is referred to in the book, and uh, I don't know if Paul Maloney's here, but he particularly, no, he particularly writes about him in the book. Um, any other comments, questions, please? I think my voice is loud enough. It's just a very quick question. You, meant, you mentioned Talcott Parsons, but the other great figure in this is Irving Goffman, and you I did with the idea of therapeutic communities providing sort of a place to be for people who can't manage in society. And, and Lang was the great start, you know, originator of those. But Arbors is now closed. The Philadelphia communities have closed. If somebody's breaking down, there's nowhere to go. You know? And Lang did provide a space with his thoughts and his, and his organizations that provided that. And there isn't one now. And this is not the conference for the dialect, dialectics of liberation, unfortunately, if only it were. Yeah. yeah. I think we have to remember that. Hmm? We didn't really hear what you were saying. Oh. Well, I, I, I had a great... I, I used to work for Arbors and was a consultant for Arbors Association, which was a spin-off from the Philadelphia Association. They've all closed because that nobody would finance patients to actually be uh, residents there. 
So uh, these days, if I'm working with somebody who's in danger of having a, well, a psychotic breakdown or a regression, there is actually nowhere them to, for them to go. And Lang was the person, I think, who began uh, the idea mm. of uh, non-medicalized communities where people could be treated, and they were wonderful. Okay, but bloody hard places to work. Actually, and you had to be young and idealistic to work there. Right? <laughs> and you left old and <laughs> lost your idealism. But I saw it really helped some people. Mary Barnes died recently, didn't she? You know, it really helped some people. Um, but it was done in a spirit of uh, idealized sort of belief that you could actually engage with people deeply and provide them with the right space. They would change, and that was Lang's great, great, great. You know, creation, but it's 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 gone. It has to, they have to rediscover the wheel all over again. That's a tragedy. I can't remember, but it's it, yes, associated. Yeah, yeah. Joe Burke, Ronnie Lang, and Joe Burke's still alive. But. There are people involved. Joanna trained there. I trained at the Philadelphia Association. Yeah, so yeah. there are little bits. Was there a question back there? Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Let's do it. Can't reinvent the seventies. <laughs> yeah, but no. maybe it's it's better than the two thousand and fifteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Any other questions or comments people want to make? I was holding back thinking we'd run out of time, but clearly we haven't. Um, one of the things we seem to keep dancing around is what balance of emphasis we give on, indiv- on the individual and on collective solutions yeah. to the problem of locating everything in individuals. I mean, even in, uh, in the presentation we heard about the sick role, what wasn't spoken of, of course, is we also know that, you know, it's like the, how cholera got spread. There's one particular water pump that a whole community contributes to um, spreading germs through, or, you know, I forget, forgot who the other woman was who was a cook and didn't wash her hands and she had this community and so on. So there's a whole other story to locating just the illness in the individual and treating just the individual. So if somebody has a difficulty because their mother doesn't love them, it's no point treating them if you don't uh, treat the problems in society in which women find it hard to love their children and yeah, so on. Sure. sure Start was a wonderful thing that the, the Labour Party brought in. You know, helping mothers actually form attachments to their children, but it's been closed. You know? I think there's closing. Yeah. I think there's a question: How do we do social interventions? Yeah. But also, can't we do more in our individual interventions? Can't we, in in working with our clients, patients, look at how maybe they're the mother who doesn't love? Yeah. Uh, how how what's our responsibility for their responsibility? Yeah. Of how they are with others. To what extent do we see that in our work? Are mm. we still more encouraging this individualism yeah, that they find their voice, perhaps at the expense of others? So there's a question back there. I've, I've got a loud voice on the other mic. Um, it's just something you know, does, it, does it actually pull it on what Ian says? It just really polluted this idea of services for the people that are damaged. Um, Having to, to repair people generation after generation, having to or the actual problem itself just gains um, more sophisticated ways 
to, to dominate, as, as Ian was describing, and the more people are, are more damaged for longer, with less resources to help them. Yeah. But it's kind of, it kind of enables it just to keep going. Well, uh, unless there are any other burning questions, perhaps I... No? Could I ask the people who've been speaking perhaps to respond to that and anything else? Who would like to start? Well, yeah, OK, I'll respond to that last one. I think the point I'm trying to make is that we are caught up in something which is very... We are caught up in something which is very deeply embedded very heavily institutionalized, finds expression in all walks of life. And for all of those things, at the same time, very difficult to identify and turn against. And at the same time, also very understandable to others. Somebody mentioned Lang. One of the things that we've had to work quite hard at within the critical psychiatry network is to make sure that we're not stereotyped with, in inverted commas, anti-psychiatry. Because that immediately puts us together in a box which is regarded as a crazy box. I'm not saying it is a crazy box, but that's how it's understood by so many. And those are very powerful institutional forces. So I think we have to understand and reflect that this is not an easy task. Okay, we're coming up to lunch, so I'll keep this brief. But for me, I think there are two domains in which this question about the relationship between politics and our internal emotional lives needs to be connected or, or can be connected. One domain is in the domain of psychotherapy. And the problem is, the problem that I was trying to draw attention to in my talk, the problem is that that link between politics and personal lives is a link that's being made to control people. That psychologization is being used to encourage people to take responsibility for their own internal problems when really it's the political context and alienation under capitalism which is the fundamental underlying problem. That's one domain in which the connection between politics and uh, internal mental life is made, personal life is made. But there's another domain which is also very important. So when I wrote the pieces for, uh, for this... It was part of a series of interventions, not only in the psychotherapeutic community, but interventions in the left. That is, there's another domain, and that's in the domain of revolutionary politics, where we need to learn the lessons of second-wave feminism, socialist feminism, from the 1960s and 1970s, that taught us that, uh, that, that the personal is political and that the kind of political activities that we have to be involved in outside the clinic also have to connect with the ways in which people feel about what they're doing and the ways in which power relations are reproduced 
in between people and inside people when they're involved in politics itself. So I have those two kind of tasks that I'm involved in when I'm involved, when I'm working as a psychoanalyst and I work as in, in the clinic to give people a space to talk, a, a space to talk about their experiences in a way that they've never spoken about before. It's a very peculiar space, a very precious space of the clinic. But, also to put energy into political change outside the clinic to change the conditions so that we can look forward to a day when this kind of privatized psychiatry and psychoanalysis as such is unnecessary. Thank you. So I think we, we need to call it a time now. I, I, I hope that you feel that now, we are going to have this afternoon, you'll find women will be increasingly having the final say here. But, and my apologies for it just being a male show this morning, but, but uh, given the limitations that, that we're men, I think certainly the others have done quite a good job. So could you? Yeah? <laughs>